Hello, everyone, and welcome to Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. So today's episode is going to be a little different than what I have done in the past, but actually a lot is happening in the last week and a half, two weeks in a number of the cases that we've covered over the course of the podcast. And as you know, I would usually do a two or three minute little update and send it out. But as I started to write this update, it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. So I am turning this into the update episode. I'm going to cover the updates for each one of these cases and also just an abbreviated bit about each case. But I will supply the episode number for each case we're covering if you want to go back and listen in more depth. I probably won't really go into any thoughts on these, which some of you may appreciate. I know not everybody likes the musing sections, which is totally fine. Um, But we're just going to go ahead and dive in and go over some of these important updates. And the cases that we're updating go all the way back to episode seven. So let's go ahead and get into it. So the first case that I'm touching base on is actually to make a correction. I think it's super important as content creators that not only do we work hard and research hard to give you great and accurate content, but it's also important to correct ourselves when necessary. So I have a correction on episode 51 about Erin A. Thompson. So I mentioned when I did the episode that I kind of was saying her name a certain way because I didn't have a good source to go off of that was an audio source. But I did have both the person who requested the episode as well as one of my YouTube listeners come to me and let me know. So her name is pronounced Erin A. But in addition to touching on this correction about Erin A's name, I also want to give a brief reminder about her case. So she lived with her dad, Aaron Thompson, in Aurora, and there was a lot of people living in the home. Shelly Lowe, who was Thompson's girlfriend, also lived there. Two of the kids living there were Thompson's, and five were Lowe's. So there was Aaron A's older brother, Aaron Thompson Jr., and Aaron A., and then there was Shelly Lowe's five children, who were Andrew Lowe, Tamara Lowe, Kadisha Smith, Eric Williams Jr. and Kayla Williams. And Lowe was actually pregnant at the time. Lowe's teenage half-brother, Rajan Russell, also lived there. Erin A. was reported missing on November 14th, 2005, and she was reported missing between 12.30 and 1.30 p.m. The story that Thompson originally told police was that Erin A. had run away and that this was supposedly prompted by a fight the two had over a cookie. But the doubt the investigators had in this story started with many odd circumstances. And the authorities soon had plenty of reasons to be suspicious of Lowe and Thompson. And the other kids in the home would actually eventually reveal a lot of abuse going on from both Lowe and Thompson. On November 18th, 2005, four days after the missing person report was filed, the search turned into a homicide investigation, with Thompson and Lowe being the key persons of interest. Now fast forward to May 2007 and Thompson was indicted by a grand jury. The grand jury indicted him on all 60 charges that were put against him, which included conspiracy, child abuse, 
Contributing to the delinquency of a minor, assault, abuse of a corpse, false reporting, and child abuse resulting in death. He was also found guilty in a 2007 civil case, although I'm not sure of all the details on this. Shelley Lowe was also implicated in the indictment, but died prior to any court proceedings. She died in May 2006 at the age of 33. Thompson was convicted in September 2009 of child abuse resulting in death. He had 55 charges against him and was convicted of 31 of them. The 31 charges that he was convicted of were the most serious charges on the list. The 22 that he was acquitted of were mostly abuse charges of the other children, not of Aaron A. He was sentenced to 114 years in jail. His case did go to the Colorado Court of Appeals, but all three judges upheld Thompson's conviction. But some odd precedents were set. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to the episode, which again is number 51. The very important thing about Aranae's story is that her body has never been found. It is believed that she may be buried in a field somewhere. At the time of her death, Aranae was around four or four and a half years old. She was four feet tall and weighed 60 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white sweater with a gray hooded sweatshirt, pink sweatpants, and white sneakers. If you have any information about Aranae's location or anything about this case that could lead to her location, please contact the Aurora Police Department at 303-627-3100. Now keep in mind she could be anywhere in Colorado or even in the surrounding states, given some of the timelines presented in this case. And like I said earlier, if you'd like to hear more in depth about Aranae's case, you can listen to episode 51. The next case we're touching base on is that of Dylan Redwine and a brief update about what's going on with his family. I covered Dylan's case in episodes 9, 10, and 16, as well as a number of short updates. Dylan Redwine was 13 years old and was killed by his father on a court-ordered holiday visit. His father, Mark Redwine, has been convicted. You could say that Dylan's case is one of the most high-profile cases in southwest Colorado in recent years. In short, after Mark Redwine and Dylan's mom, Elaine, got divorced, there was a lot of tension in the relationship between Dylan and his father. The relationship continued to deteriorate in summer of 2012 when Dylan went to visit his father and found some pictures that he had taken of him doing some disturbing things. Needless to say, once Dylan had left this trip, he didn't have a lot of contact with his dad. During this time, Mark Redwine and Elaine were going through a pretty intense custody battle, and Elaine would end up being ruled as primary custody, but it was decided that Dylan would have to continue to visit his father. The next court-ordered visit Dylan would have to attend would be over Thanksgiving weekend in 2012 to his father's house near Durango, Colorado. Dylan was last seen on November 18th, 2012, when he arrived for the trip. It was actually Elaine who would report her son missing long distance from Monument, Colorado, with the La Plata County Sheriff's Office on November 19th at 5.30 p.m. Now, there's a lot in the middle here that mounted suspicions against Redwine, and I'll let you listen to those in the episodes. You can listen to a lot of that in episodes 9 and 10. 16 covers mainly a lot of the courtroom and leading up to conviction information. The summer after his disappearance in June of 2013, 
Some of Dylan's remains, as well as pieces of a sock and a shirt, were found on a dirt road that goes through the San Juan National Forest called Middle Mountain Road. The remains were located about 8 miles up the dirt road and 10 yards out from the road. This road served as both an ATV trail and a U.S. Forest Service road. The location was within 10 miles of Mark Redwine's home. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or CBI, would confirm these remains as being Dylan's. On August 19, 2015, Mark Redwine was named a person of interest in Dylan's case. Now remember, this is different from being a suspect. Investigators thought that he had information on the case, and while he could be upgraded to a suspect, he wasn't at this time. It took investigators a long time to get Mark Redwine arrested and get him into court, just based on building proper evidence against him to get to a conviction in the end, which they did. On January 16th, 2021, just last summer, the jury, the jury in this case deliberated for only one day and came back with a verdict of guilty of second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. Mark Redwine has since been sentenced to 48 years in jail. To date, Dylan's phone, iPod, and backpack have still never been found. Dylan's mom, Elaine, and his brother, Corey, appeared on the Dr. Phil show. They'd actually been on the show multiple times through both the search for Dylan and going through court proceedings. So they have a pretty good relationship there, and they've used the Dr. Phil show as an outlet to be able to tell their story and to tell Dylan's story. They told Dr. Phil that now that there's a conviction, they're trying to focus on what the future holds for their family and living in a way that honors Dylan. They had told Dr. Phil that once all of this was over and there was a conviction, they wanted to take a family trip. Dr. Phil told them on this episode that he worked with a travel company and gave them a trip to Los Cabos, Mexico for seven days for them and their significant others. I hope that Elaine and Corey and their significant others enjoy this trip so much and finally get a little bit of rest because they deserve it. They worked so hard to get justice for Dylan and to make sure his story continued to be told. They really deserve some rest and relaxation. If you're wondering, Mark Redwine and his counsel did say that they were going to go for an appeal, but I've seen no info on this yet. I certainly hope for Elaine and Corey that this is the end of the story. Granted, that's how our system works, and Mark Redwine would have the right to do that, but I hope for the rest of Dylan's family that this is laid to rest and they can begin to move on with their lives. I certainly wish Corey and Elaine and the rest of Dylan's family the best. Again, if you want to learn more about this case, you can listen to episodes 9, 10, and 16, as well as a number of short updates that I put out. Okay, guys, our third update is regarding the Gannon Stauk case, and this is one that we kind of have been expecting. So I originally covered this case in episode 25 and with a lot of subsequent updates and continuing to do updates as this moves through the court process. Gannon Stauk was 11 years old and disappeared on January 27, 2020. He was last seen in his dad and stepmom's house in southeast Colorado Springs in Lorson Ranch. His stepmom, Letitia Stalk, was the last one to see him alive. After three days of investigating this as a missing person case, Gannon's case was changed to a homicide. 
Part of the change was mounting suspicion, but also Gannon took medicine regularly, and it would have been fatal if he did not have access to this medication. The search for Gannon would last three weeks and would include canine, horseback, and drone searches. The new neighborhood of Lorson Ranch would band together, both searching for Gannon and turning all their lights to blue, Gannon's favorite color, in hopes it would help Gannon find his way home. Gannon's story has drawn national media attention. On February 3, 2020, the search for blood evidence in the home began. Investigators used a chemical similar to luminol called Blue Star to locate traces of blood and blood splatter. According to Janet Oravetz's reporting for Nine News, the search located blood evidence throughout the family's home. And Gannon's bedroom in specific had a plethora of evidence. There was evidence of blood splatter throughout the walls of the room, Gannon's mattress, carpet, and the bedroom floor underneath the carpet. All had blood stains. Gannon's blood was also found on the garage floor and bumper of Stouk's car. With evidence mounting against her, Stouk was arrested on March 2, 2020, in South Carolina. At the time of Stouk's arrest, officials believed that Gannon was probably not alive. And they were right. Gannon's body was found on March 18, 2020. Florida Department of Transportation bridge inspectors were the ones to find the suitcase that housed Gannon's remains near Escambia River Bridge on Interstate 90. The suitcase had been located under the bridge, and this was near Pensacola, Florida, a 22-hour drive from Colorado Springs. An autopsy would show that Gannon had a skull fracture. He also had sharp force injuries to the left chest and right of the back. Now, sharp force injuries are like blunt force injuries, but instead of being hit with something like a bat or a rock, you're hit with something sharp, so something like a knife. Gannon's body also had a gunshot to the jaw, and a bullet was found in his skull. There was a pillow in the suitcase that also had two bullets in it as well. His arms and hands had cuts on them indicative of defensive wounds. Including these defensive wounds and the sharp first traumas to the chest and back, Gannon had been stabbed 18 times. Letitia Stalk was held without bond for her multiple charges. According to Janet Oravetz's reporting for Nine News, these felony charges are first-degree murder after deliberation, first-degree murder of a person under 12 by someone in a position of trust, child abuse resulting in death, tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence, seven counts of a crime of violence for using a weapon, the weapons listed in the complaint include a firearm, blunt object, and sharp object, and one count of crime violence causing severe bodily injury or death. Now, to date, Letitia Stock has underwent two separate mental health evaluations, and on January 19, 2021, one year after Gannon's disappearance, was deemed competent to stand trial. These mental health evaluations caused delays, and another delay would happen when Stauk decided that she wanted to represent herself. But after a few months of back and forth in May 2021, she decided not to represent herself and was given new attorneys. It was decided on Thursday, December 9th, 2021, that Letitia Stout would get a new mental health evaluation. And that's where we're at now. Now, we foresaw a delay in this due to the long wait for treatment at the Colorado Mental Health Institute in Pueblo. Basically... What her attorney is going for is that they say that she understands what's going on with her counsel in the case, but they allege that she did not have this kind of lucidity at the time of the actual murder. On April 21st, just about a week and a half ago, 
Her attorneys asked for more time to complete the evaluations. Judge Werner had granted a motion for Letitia Stauk not to appear at this hearing. The hospital in Pueblo said they need additional information, and Stauk's attorney is actually traveling to South Carolina to get some additional medical records for doctors to use in the course of their evaluation. Once the South Carolina records are in their possession, the doctors will need time to review those records in order to complete the mental health evaluation. The hospital gave a timeline of the end of May to have this completed. So a new court appearance has been scheduled for June 9th at 1.30 p.m. I'll continue to keep you updated on this case. And like I said, if you want to learn about this more in detail, you can listen to episode 25 and the subsequent updates about this case. Okay, guys, we still have two more cases to go over. I told you there was a ton going on with our cases in the last couple weeks. So the next one is a case that we covered in episode 42, and that is the case of Janelle Matthews. Janelle was a 12-year-old 7th grader when she went missing. She went missing on December 20th, 1984 from her home. She was dropped off at around 8.30 p.m. by a family friend to her home after a little Christmas concert. Her father and sister got home to find no Janelle. And running away was really quickly ruled out because it just wasn't an option. Not only because of Janelle's character, but the timing was not a good time for a 12-year-old to run away. Her disappearance happened five days before Christmas, and with the holiday looming, there was every reason for a 12-year-old girl not to run away, with opening of presents being just days away. Searches began, but turned up nothing. Shortly after Janelle's disappearance, the National Child Safety Council had just begun the Missing Children at Milk Carton program, in which details about missing children would be placed on milk cartons throughout the nation. The aim was to help spread the message about missing children throughout the U.S. as children were often taken across state lines. Janelle's picture was one of the first to show up on milk cartons through this program. Janelle's body was found, but not until 34 years after her disappearance. Her body was found on July 23, 2019 by workers digging a pipeline in the area about 20 minutes south of Greeley. The clothes that Janelle was found in were the same clothes she was wearing when she disappeared. Investigators officially named a person of interest in 2019. This suspect was Stephen Dana Pankey, and he knew a lot of information about Janelle's case, made himself known to police, and had said that he had information about Janelle's case. Now, pretty much all of the evidence against him is circumstantial, but in October 2020, Pankey was indicted by a grand jury. The charges he was indicted on were first-degree murder, second-degree kidnapping with a weapon, and crimes of violence counts, which would have enhanced a sentence if he was convicted. The trial for this case took place in October 2021 and began 37 years after Janelle went missing. And like I said, all this evidence is very circumstantial, so I highly recommend you listen to episode 42 to really get all the nuances on this, because I am getting very abbreviated on this case. The jury started to deliberate on November 2nd, 2021, and deliberated for two days. And some of the charges against Pinky drew a mistrial. These were the first-degree murder, felon murder, and second-degree kidnapping. He did get convicted on one charge, though. And 
The jury was unanimous on the verdict for false reporting to authorities. This charges a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of six months in jail. The prosecution immediately knew they were going to be seeking a retrial. Well, as of May 3rd, 2022, just a couple days ago, Stephen Pankey's public defender has withdrawn from the case. According to Jennifer Campbell Hicks reporting for Nine News, this was, quote, due to an irreconcilable conflict of interest pursuant to the Colorado Rules of Professional Conduct, unquote. This public defender started representing Pankey last year. So this attorney took over after Pankey's other lawyer ended his connection with the case after the mistrial was declared in November 2021. So there is a hearing scheduled on May 12th that will discuss this matter of the public defender withdrawing, and we'll see where things go from there. At this point, Panky has been in prison longer than the maximum sentence of his false reporting charge. So if there's not a retrial, he would essentially, you know, have served his time already and be out of jail. So I'll keep you posted as we learn more as a retrial potentially goes back into the courtroom. If you want to learn more about this case, and I highly recommend you do, it's really one that is very close to the people in Greeley and to natives in Colorado at the time. Again, you can listen to more about this case in episode 42. The last case update we're going to cover today is that of the case of Crystal Reisinger. And this is an old one. We covered this case all the way back in episode 7 when Altitude Crime was just a wee babe. And I have to sum up this update as like, (gasps) it was so exciting and then wah, wah, wah. But I thought it was interesting to share because it's pretty interesting and very Crestone (laughs) funky-ish. Crystal was 29 years old when she went missing in April 2016. Now, if you go back and listen to this episode, you will learn that the timeline on when Crystal is reported missing or last seen or whatnot is very sketchy. So there's a few quote-unquote last sightings of her. One's on July 12th when her current boyfriend, Nathan, would see her for the last time. She also bought groceries that same day with her food stamp card. On July 13th, 2016, was the last time she talked to her ex, Eli, and her daughter, Akasha. Crystal's last Facebook post would happen on July 14th, and this was notable because she was a very regular social media user, so her continued absence on Facebook is extremely notable. On July 18th, there's some questions. Some people say that Crystal was sighted at a full moon drum circle, and some people think she was not. So... Regardless of that, Crystal's landlord, Ara, alerted authorities to her disappearance and filed a missing person report on July 30th, 2016. And again, I really recommend you listen to this episode. In addition to a questionable timeline on the last time that Crystal was really seen, there's also a lot of interesting and shady characters in this one. Well, on the evening of Monday, April 25th, just about a week ago, so it's 2022, there was a big discovery in Sawatch County where Crystal went missing. So this happened about 5.30 p.m. that night at the Sawatch County Road 71 gate to North Crestone Campground. So this campground is closed seasonally September through May, so it's not quite open for the season yet when this call comes in. But somebody calls authorities and says, there's a bone on the side of the road. 
So authorities respond and the bones appear to be burned and mixed with ashes. Lindsay Grew from KKTV reported that the Sawatch County Sheriff's Office said, quote, the bones did appear to be human in appearance and appeared to have been burned or cremated as there was what appeared to be ashes mixed in with the bones, unquote. So they investigate the area and the bones were removed from the area the next day on April 26, 2022. The CBI and Sawatch County Coroner worked to identify the remains and they were confirmed as human on Wednesday, April 27th. So this brought up two huge immediate questions over two very high profile women who went missing. So pretty much immediately people are thinking Crystal Reisinger and Suzanne Morphew. We know Crystal's been missing since 2016, and Susan Morphew went missing actually on Mother's Day today in May of 2020. But authorities pretty much immediately said they were not either of these women. I don't know how they ruled that out so quickly, but it was put out there pretty immediately. I mean, there was a lot of speculation right off of if it was one of these women, and it was squashed pretty quickly. So as I said... I covered Crystal's case in episode 7, and I am looking to cover the Morphew case. I know some of you have been asking me about it, but I was kind of waiting for a little bit of resolution there because if we cover too many ongoing cases, you're going to have update episodes like this for me all the time, and then that's not quite as fun, is it? So my first thought when I first read this initial article about these being found, I was like, ah, it could be remains, but also if you... Remember from episode seven, if you listened to it already, Crestone is like one of the only places in the nation that offers open air cremation services. So my first thought was, it's been real windy in the state lately. Like, could this have just been some cast off from that company? Um, And I was close, actually. A family actually had purposely put their loved one's remains in the area They originally meant to go to North Crestone Trailhead, but couldn't make it there, I'm assuming since this area is closed off for the season. So the coroner did give the remains back to the family, and the sheriff's office asked them to scatter the remains in a less publicly noticeable place as to not cause alarm to the public. Crystal has still not been found to this day. She's 5'6 and weighs around 155 pounds. She has platinum blonde dreadlocks and a lot of distinctive tattoos. She has blue eyes, her nose is pierced, and she also has gauge ear piercings in both ears. If you have any information about Crystal's disappearance, please call the Sawatch County Sheriff's Office at 719-655-2544. Okay, guys, so like I said, this was an interesting one, but there has been a lot going on in our local cases and ranging from decades old up to very recently. So I didn't want you guys to miss out on that information if you didn't have a chance to keep up on your own. I do like to keep you updated as stuff moves along. And before I drop the social media handles here, I do want to know we have a number of cases that are ongoing that, you know, I do the main episode and there's, you know, anywhere from one to like nine updates depending on where the case is at. Once a case is essentially resolved, would you guys want that kind of condensed into one long episode. It wouldn't be your Sunday content. It would be some additional content, but it would be something for you to go back to and listen to the case, like start to finish all in one place. Let me know what you think. You can get me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. 
Or if you pop over to altitudecrime.com, there is an email for me on there. There's also a suggested case link, so keep them coming. As well, there's also a link to the store, the Patreon, and a very, very adorable children's book my boyfriend wrote, which is on the shop page at the very bottom. And of course, there's sources for this episode. The sources listed are actually going to just be this new info that I've gotten. The main episode sources will be in those areas. So if you want to see the sources for episode 7 about Crystal Reisinger, pop over to the episode 7 link and see those sources. Okay, guys, thanks so much for tuning in today for a kind of unique kind of episode for us. But I hope you learned something new and, and I cannot wait to talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 57, The Update Episode, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.